Welcome to another episode of our ASEMA Development Podcast. We've got what I think is a good one today, because I think it's something that we struggle with as developers. I think most, if not all of us, hit this occasionally, at least. And we've got a kind of a perfect group today to talk about this subject, because we've got a wide range of experience. The topic we're going to be uh, addressing today is imposter syndrome. Before we dive into that, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves. I'm Mike. I'm going to be hosting today. Well, let's go around. Uh, Eddie, do you want to introduce yourself? My name's Eddie from the QA um, team. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me as a least. Great. Damon. Uh, my name is Damon, and I am on the application support team. Thank you. And Ramses. Hey, everyone. I'm Ramses. I am on the Atlas development team. Excited to be here. Thank you. And I'm currently director of engineering here at ASEMA. So we've got a range of experiences of backgrounds, which I think is perfect. We've got somebody who's been doing software development for decades, somebody who's officially on the team has only been doing it for a short time, somebody from support and somebody from QA, both of which hope to get into development. It gives us a chance to talk about the different perspectives that we might have on a career in software and how that feels from those different positions. And the similarities and differences, but I think you'll find that there's more similarities than differences. I give a little introduction is this idea of imposter syndrome. It doesn't just apply to software. I think it applies in a number of fields, but particularly in software, where our job is to solve problems. There's no handbook. There's no clear set of guidelines. This is exactly what you do. Instead, you're sitting in front of a computer with the problem to solve and say, go ahead, solve it. And that's it. I certainly have peers who can help you, but it's easy to be sitting there in that desk and feel like, I'm not sure. Do I belong here? People around me seem to know what they're doing. Do I? <laughs> I have a hard time imagining that there's anybody who doesn't feel that way sometimes. I'll tell you a little about my background. I've been, as I mentioned, doing this for uh, over 20 years. I started my full-time software career right after the dot-com bust. A lot of those big dot-com companies from the late 90s went belly up in the early 2000s. And the industry was flooded with developers, skilled developers, who had just been let go from their jobs. And there was a, a glut of people to do work and the jobs hadn't quite caught up to it yet. And it was very challenging to find work. I eventually found a full-time work my recollection is I was making less at the time than I'd been doing work in construction previously <laughs> and went and got a degree for this. It was certainly easy to feel like I didn't belong and I, I had made some wrong choices along the way. That led to some interesting developments. I was working for a startup that went really big and then crashed spectacularly. We actually let go all of the software development team, but one, and then he quit. They ended up hiring me back on. So I was went from being just a junior developer to running all the software for the company within just a few years. And I wasn't perfect at it. And there's a lot of pressure. I learned a lot during that time trying to run things on my own. But, you know, I also made some mistakes and had that, you know, I'm swimming in the deep end now. I had, you know, there's nobody here to help me experience. Let's mixed feelings. You know, do I belong here? Do I not belong here? I had some respect in that I was doing the job, but then I wasn't doing it perfectly. And I have all those questions. I later moved to another company where I had a somewhat similar experience. We grew tremendously, 
and then kind of slowly tapered off. That company finally shut down operations back in January. And I ended up the lead there at the department for a while and examining myself. Am I doing okay? Am I not doing okay? And after a while, after that, I went to contract work. Across all of this time, I had experiences that taught me a lot and had positions where they seemed to show some respect, but all along, all along my entire career, I've wondered, am I, am I really doing okay here? Do I really belong? And now I'm here at SEMA, recently got my title to director of engineering, and it sounds kind of respectable, <laughs> but just like everybody else, I'm figuring it out. I can't claim to know everything. Uh, there's a lot that I don't know, and I'm always trying to learn, start reading and paying attention to my peers, trying to figure out how to do this the best way. I've learned to recognize that I'm never going to know everything. It's a fast-moving field with so much to learn that I couldn't possibly know. And doing well in this industry is not about knowing everything, but about having that humility to recognize you don't and being willing to ask. And further, just trying to solve problems. And with that, I'd like to, you know, I, I kind of wanted to give an intro there. Now I'm going to be quiet for a while, and I'm interested in the thoughts of the others here on the call to share what their experience has been and how they perceive things, given that background, this idea of imposter syndrome. Mike, I do kind of want to um, add to what you were saying. You mentioned you were you're in the field for over 20 years. How did you warm up to the idea of imposter syndrome and how did you get over it? That's a great question. I don't think I heard the term until much after my career had started. I don't think it's become white, it gone into widespread use. I could be wrong. One of those things I might just not have heard, but I don't think it's been in widespread use until the last few years. So I think there might be a few answers to that. First of all, when I heard the term, I thought, oh, yes, <laughs> that's what it is. And I've noticed that as I've mentored a lot of people, and that's something I'll point out that has helped a lot. As I've mentored a lot of people, I've noticed that most developers I've worked with tend to feel that way. They'll express something along the lines of, you know, how am I doing? Do I really belong here? I feel kind of um, maybe out of place. Not because the people around them aren't supporting, aren't supportive, but wow, I'm around a lot of smart, capable people. Am I really that? And the answer universally has always been yes. Yes, you are that. You know, and we have differences in experience. It's not that everybody has exactly the same skill level or exactly the same background, but everyone that I've worked with has had something to contribute. Perhaps the biggest differentiator I've seen as I've done a lot of mentoring between people who are really successful and people who aren't is that the really successful people are deeply curious. They don't see asking questions as a sign of weakness, but just the natural consequence of their insatiable curiosity, right? They just want to figure things out. And because of that, they're willing to be vulnerable enough to ask, whether it's ask their peers, ask mentors, ask Google, ask wherever it is they need to ask to figure problems out and experiment and try. None of us are going to quite know the answers. If we all knew the answers, then we could automate this job and we'd all be out of work. We don't know the answers. And so people who were asking the questions who have been very successful. So in answer to your question, how did I kind of see this and, and get over it? A lot of it has come from not just my own experience, but watching everybody else that I've worked with. I've seen so many people become successful. I've mentored a number of people who've gone on to be quite successful in their careers. And they were a diverse group of people. And they've come from different backgrounds. A number of people coming from customer support, 
uh, or similar roles to that, you know, who felt like, wow, I'm going into development, do I really belong here? And it went on to become extremely successful. And seeing that progress of these capable people who maybe doubted themselves at first, but allowed that curiosity to blossom, allowed that curiosity to lead them to ask those questions and solve the problems. If I'm curious, if I'm solving problems, if I'm helping people out around me, well, I'm adding value. And it doesn't matter if I'm exactly like everybody else around me. I'm helping. I find that kind of interesting um, because I came from a kind of a different background. So I never did customer service or anything like that. I was in the military for a few years and uh, I had a position where it was, hey, we're going to give you this piece of equipment. You need to figure out how it works. If it breaks, you need to figure out how to fix it. And asking questions wasn't encouraged. It was almost like frowned upon. It was like, oh, you can't figure it out? Okay, we'll find somebody who can. And when I came into this role, sitting side by side with super smart people like Ramsey's or, you know, learning from somebody else, it was like, am I supposed to be here? Is it okay to ask these questions? I think breaking that habit for me is very challenging. (laughs) That's interesting. Well, I've got a couple of things to say to that. I've seen research that suggests that people come from the military are more likely to be successful in this field. Mm. I don't know all the reasons, and I don't know that the researchers knew all the reasons, but <laughs> something about that background, maybe about the requirement to be problem solver, tends to be very uh, helpful. Right. The other thing I would point out, though, is, is what you said is that idea of it being frowned on, that I shouldn't ask questions. You experienced it there, but I think most of us experience that somewhere. Mm-hmm. People who've gone to school, well, if you're asking the person next to you for help on your assignment, well, that might be cheating. And we get ingrained in us this idea that you shouldn't ask for help. Doing that is doing it wrong. But in the industry here, the opposite is true, that if you're doing it yourself, you're doing it wrong. And let me uh, explain that a little bit. It's not that we can't go off and, and, and solve a problem largely independently, but almost none of us are gonna write in machine code. We don't write zeros and ones. We write in computer languages, which were written by somebody else. And most of what we do is use libraries that were written by somebody else or maintain libraries that are written by a community. And we're just working at the very top of this pyramid that stands on the work of so many uh, women and men who've gone before us. This idea that we would be working alone is, is, I think, really misguided, that we're all deeply dependent on those working with now and those who've gone before who've laid the foundation for us. There are many different sources that will tell us, you know, you shouldn't be asking. You need to be figuring this out on your own. I think most people have to overcome that notion from a variety of backgrounds, uh, where you got it in your previous career. Many of us get it from our previous careers or from school or just for our upbringing. And it may be not universal, but it's quite common. Yeah, I think that makes sense for sure. Yeah, like you were saying, um, just being in this field now and, and asking so many questions, there's there's so many people that want to help you, you know, there's so many people that are like, if you have a question to ask and you kind of think like, oh, you know, that's just something people say, like, people are just like, you know, if you have a question to ask, but if you really ask, they're like, okay, hold on, let me, let me pair with you and break exactly, break it down exactly how it's supposed to be. And you learn so much from that. And uh, that has been super helpful for sure. Ask a follow-up question. Have you had people say things to you like, man, I love pairing? Oh, yeah. Especially like uh, Melissa, Afton. 
they're always down to pair and like, well, let me show you exactly how to do it. Or, you know, it's great. They actually love just teaching. And, and that love is genuine. It's not, I'm going to put down this because I'm sympathetic. They genuinely love it. And I think that those of you listening can probably find a mentor like that because there's a lot of joy in mentoring. It's very enjoyable to go and and watch those lights turn on in somebody's eyes and see them get it. It's a wonderful experience. And it's probably my favorite part of the job. It's not something that I feel like I'm being burdened to do, but it's something that I feel like I get to do. Like, oh, wow, I, I can get out of a long meeting and instead go and help somebody find something cool. It's not something you should be shy to do. And if you're not finding mentors that are willing to do that, then maybe you need to look a little farther afield because they're out there. I found that there are many people who want to share when given the opportunity. When I first picked up the Atlas backlog tickets, it was easy for me to feel that I was the only one having a problem uh, and seeing other people pushing dev tickets and stuff, you know, but in reality with pairing, you get to see really quickly, you know, that others are presented with the same problems as well. And the unique part about pairing is that you get to see their approach to how to solve a problem. Um, to me, the important thing is that I've learned thus far is to ensure the problem doesn't become bigger than you do. Use it as a stepping stone in a sense. So you get comfortable and you accept it and it's okay. And accept the fact that it's okay to ask other people for help. You've done a phenomenal job with picking the people that's on the team because everyone that I've reached out to has been more than willing to help and pair. For me, it's basically just don't get scared of the uncomfortable situations and instead embrace them. And then eventually you will find the solution. I think that's uh, just something to piggyback off of here. That's something really interesting that you say, because um, when I, I did my first ticket, I think it was the day before yesterday, and I, I was like, hey, can I pair with you? Because I don't know where to start. And just seeing how they like someone will go through the process or like, and they run into the exact same, like just issues that, I mean, you would run into down the line. It's like, okay, I get it. Like <laughs> I wasn't the only one, you know, just not getting it. And then they, they need your input or they want your input and you want their input. So it, it's just, I don't know. I love it. Like he said, Asima as a company picked a fantastic team um, as a whole. One thing I'd like to maybe add to that is that let me preface this a little bit. There's a, cultural trope of a software developer as being a antisocial recluse who maybe goes down in a basement and bangs away on the keyboard alone for a long time and comes out with some masterpiece. And I'm not going to say that there's nobody who works in a basement. I work in a basement office, <laughs> but that is in general a misrepresentation of how software gets built, that we work as a community maybe give an example, perhaps the most successful software project on earth is Linux, which is an operating system made by a guy named Linus, did a, his own take on something similar to the Unix operating system and made a portmanteau of that of Linus and Unix and you get Linux. He wrote this simple operating system quite some time ago, more than decades. He just gave it out to the community, formed a community around it. The community worked together to build something amazing. And, you know, they started getting uh, industry support and there's people paid by their companies to work full-time on that operating system. And it grew to become far more than what one person 
could do. Now, uh, Linus Torvalds, very talented person, and he still kind of leads that community. But he's a leader, not the sole developer. In fact, I don't think that somebody in his position should be writing most of the code or trying to, because they can't. And they would not be spending the time doing things that are more useful, which would be guiding the community. I give this background to suggest something about how software really gets built. There are people who are capable and working and building things, but they really only become successful when they work together with the community. And as a leader, that leader can cultivate an attitude of mentorship and community, or they could breed a toxic environment where everybody is forced to go work on things alone. That's a choice. And sometimes people don't make that choice consciously. I think they usually don't. But there are consequences to that choice that gets made. We talked about choosing people well. And honestly, I think that that maybe misrepresents it a little bit in that there are amazing people on the team. But I think there are amazing people all throughout the world. And they're able to be amazing when they're empowered to do so. I'm going to make a passionate entreaty, you know, a call to action to everybody out listening. Within your sphere of influence, try to create that kind of healthy community where people are encouraged and have the opportunity to ask and grow. And if you do, you will build a fertile ground for good software to come out of. I'd like to share one more thing briefly. I'm a, an avid gardener. Don't always get as much time to do it as I used to, but I still enjoy it. One thing I've learned is that you don't feed the plants. Maybe if you're doing hydroponic gardening, you do. But if you're out in the soil, you don't feed the plants. You feed the soil. If you try feeding the plants, then you're going to be very focused on the plants. And that tunnel vision you get is going to miss important components. You're going to miss the broader aspect of the ecosystem you're dealing with. If instead you pay attention to the soil and create healthy soil, so you're feeding the soil microbes and the invertebrates and you know the arthropods and worms and whatever else is out there living in your soil, and try to grow very healthy soil, then you will have a, a diverse ecosystem out there that's kind of self-balanced, that is not likely to have a lot of diseases, for example. And when you grow your plants in it, they're growing in a healthy environment that will allow them to grow well. If you're trying to force your plants to grow, you might be able to make it work sometimes, but it's not going to work very well in the long haul. Rather, if you feed the soil, then the plants will grow on their own naturally. In the Midwest where I live, there's been a, a change. I don't know, I don't know exactly the time frame, but it used to be that the, the debris on the field was always plowed under in the fox. They wanted things to look tidy. They don't do that anymore. They leave the debris from the corn and soybeans on the soil to protect the soil over the winter, keeps it from blowing away and decomposes. And then they turn it in in the spring where it then feeds the soil. And that change has led to a lot uh, less loss of topsoil and uh, better crops. The just thinking about growing the corn misses something really important. We feed the soil. And as leaders, what we need to do is create an environment for people to thrive. And they will, because people are amazing. And they'll bring their different skills to the table and, and be able to do great things. I think that's a really good analogy. Ramses, we haven't heard a whole lot from you today. You've been working on the, the team for, for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. 
What has been your experience with imposter syndrome and, and learning to ask those questions and feel comfortable and, and like you belong here? Uh, my experience has been, it's been really interesting. When I started out in location support, it was a very uh, mostly do it by myself kind of approach. I was very community driven, but I was also self motivated to find the answer however I could, whether that was just Google or asking a, a friend or a colleague, which are also my friends. So. <laughs> and now it is very, it's kind of the same, but I, I am definitely a lot more community driven now and not as a self, I mean, I'm so self-motivated, but I, I try not to spend, spend too much time on a problem by myself. And if I do find myself doing that, then I know it's, it's time to reach out. Do you ever find yourself still questioning, oh, do I, uh, am I sure I belong here? Yeah, probably all the time. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting a lot more confident, but you do still always have the, you know, is this the right approach or is this, you know, is this a good approach or how can I write my code cleaner or more simpler? But I think the best way to learn is to be uncomfortable, you know, put yourself in uncomfortable situations. That's how you grow. Absolutely. Put yourself in uncomfortable situations. We could probably spend quite a bit of time talking about that one. Yeah. <laughs> Remember um, when I was going to therapy for a minute, um, a therapist would always tell me, lean towards the discomfort. Lean towards the discomfort. And I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> nobody wants to do that. <laughs> That's something you just need to do because I feel like I have a lot of confidence but just some days where it's like, man, I, I know somebody could figure this out way faster than I could. I'm spending too much time on this. It's just a lot, you know? Yeah. Just lean towards that discomfort and make yourself uncomfortable and just do it. Yeah. Do people go to the gym because they're already like totally huge? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but they didn't get that. I mean, they didn't start out that way. Right they go to the gym specifically to do uncomfortable things so that they can grow. Yeah. I think the, the biggest point is that uh, when you're first starting in the industry, there's just so much knowledge and technology and frameworks, you know, that's been established for years before you even heard what programming was right. That it's really simple to like, start chipping at the top and you're like, dang, there's just so much I don't know. And it's really simple to feel overwhelmed. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the problem I had when I first started it was like the infamous phrase is just the tip of the iceberg. I think applies really well here. Right. Where at the surface is just like, yeah, I can do this. But then if you don't have the right mindset, it's really easy to fall victim to that. It is. I'll say it at the beginning, I'll say it again, that I recognize every day how little I know after decades in the industry. And I, I'm an enthusiastic reader. <laughs> I've always loved reading and, and learning things. And I still feel like I'm just barely scratching the tip of the iceberg. But that doesn't mean that I'm not able to be effective. I, you know, I think it's a cognitive bias, some sort of uh, psychological, uh, I don't know if weakness is the right word, because we have these biases for a reason, a kind of heuristics that guide us. But sometimes they, they lead us astray. And one of them is that we think that we know that we have to do everything to be doing it right. That's just not true. If you've accomplished something, you've accomplished something. Accomplishing everything is, is nobody's realistic goal. 
getting competent enough to do something is a great achievement. You know, if you're out in software and you're you're providing value to the company, then you belong there. You've just done something the company wanted. Well, of course you belong, right? You just solved a problem. And you may not understand the full scope of every problem that the organization you're working for is trying to solve or the larger industry or all the problems of humanity, but you wouldn't expect yourself to do that in other circumstances. You shouldn't have to expect yourself to do that here. You know, you do the ticket, talked about, you know, working a ticket and it's seeming intimidating and pairing on it, seeing other people having trouble and getting through it. But you get that ticket up and in production. First of all, it's a really great feeling. <laughs> but secondly, you've accomplished something now. You just provided value. And it doesn't really matter if it was hard. What matters is that you solved the problem. That's super helpful to know. And it makes me feel better about myself in a sense, uh, because a lot of the tickets that I will be working or be, will be like beginner tickets, like right now, or cleanup tickets or something like that. So it's like, for me, it's like, oh, somebody just kind of threw it on the side because they didn't really want to do it because, you know, it's simple to me, but it's like, hey, we needed that done. It benefited us in some type of way. You know, we have a, a pool of work. I used to talk about it with a former uh, product manager. But we said, this is important work, but it's not necessarily urgent. There's kind of a monster. It applies in software, but I, I think it applies in probably many fields of urgency that there's always something that's got to be done in a short time frame. And if you're always paying attention to that monster and fighting it away, then you never take care of some other things that are extremely important. They're just not as urgent. And in, in the worst case, you can have a situation they call firefighting, where you're just running and putting out one fire and then running and putting out another fire. Because the whole system is just barely holding together and things are falling apart. And you just solve one disaster after another because you're never taking the time to do the maintenance to prevent those disasters. And you say that you may we're doing this work that maybe doesn't seem like it's the most urgent. Well, it is true that we tend to have people who are wanting to become developers will give them work that is not the most urgent because we're trying to get it done quickly. But that doesn't mean it's not important. I think about that condominium complex in Florida that collapsed a year or two ago. There was problems with the foundation that people had noticed for some years, like parts have been falling into the parking garage. And I think that the pool was, was not shored up well. Mm -hmm. And people had seen that for a number of years, seen that there were problems, but there was always something more important to work on. And I'm going to say important, that's kind of the wrong word. There's always something more urgent to work on. And they didn't take the time to do that, that work of shoring up the foundation. When it failed, it was catastrophic and tragic, right? People died. Oh, yeah. Had they had somebody go in and do that, that work to just shore up the foundation, right? Let's, let's fix the foundation here and make sure that important work is done, even if it's not necessarily urgent. We're going to specifically dedicate some budget to having this important work done. And then that tragedy could have been averted and lives could have been saved. We're probably not talking about such a life and death thing with most of the work that we're doing. Maybe you're in healthcare and, and it is life and death. But there is important work to be done and you shouldn't feel like it's irrelevant just because it's not the most urgent work. We wouldn't have identified that work and created stories for it to be worked on mm -hmm. if it wasn't important. I think just hearing that is super reassuring for me personally. It makes me want to learn more and 
obviously just go and grab like tickets and just be like, okay, let me, let me figure it out. Let me learn. Okay. I don't know it. All right. Who wants to pair? You know, it's, it's good to hear that for sure. Mike, let me ask you something point blank here. Um, when you are in the middle of that transition, right. Where you have that milestone that you want to become a full-time developer. Is there like a general consensus or is it like perspective for you when you know that you're ready to take that leap? Where do you define that line? It's a great question. Let me try to give you a nuanced answer because I, I think that a, a short answer is probably not going to quite cut it. My nuanced answer is going to be that it probably depends on your situation. Let me elaborate a little bit. You're never going to be ready. And recognizing that, I think, can take a burden off your shoulders. Because if you're never going to be ready, then you don't have to worry about being perfectly ready. I think that uh, giving examples is helpful here. So let's talk about Olympic athletes. Olympic athletes will spend years, sometimes uh, even decades of their life training. They're usually younger, so maybe not decades, but many years of their lives training for that, that one moment. And still only one person's going to win, and sometimes it's a fluke, right? Somebody has come prepared as well as they possibly can, and then something goes wrong that's outside of their control. We have human limits that prevent us from really being able to be truly prepared for something completely. That shouldn't be our goal. So I'm going to scale that back. Say, well, if you can't be perfectly ready, well, what can you be? And I would say you're ready to jump in if you can consistently provide value in the position that you're going to be given. So for example, let me take an example outside of software. I've worked construction and I, I spent some time as a, an apprentice carpenter. First, I worked as a laborer. And when they have you work as a laborer, you're not really expected to have any experience at all. And your value comes from being able to haul things around and tear stuff down. You know, you can carry around power cables and plug them in. And I worked a job once where we tore a whole bunch of uh, wallpaper off walls in a, in a large building. You know what? I didn't have to have a whole lot of skills to do that. Just the willingness to spend long, sweaty days tearing wallpaper off walls. After a while, though, because I actually had had background before that, they had me start you know, like putting on sheetrock because I, I knew how to do that. And I was providing a little bit more value. Now, I was providing value as a laborer, but I could provide a little more value by actually doing some of the carpentry work. And then I, you know, started putting up some of the, uh, the other parts of the walls, you know, putting in the, the studs. Job I'm particularly thinking of was indoor, indoor construction in the South. So they didn't put in termite vulnerable things. So we used, we used metal studs, but you know, we, we screwed them in. I started doing that. So I was providing additional value. Had I stayed at that particular job, I would have become, you know, an actual carpenter and, and become a master of that profession over time. Well, back in software, nobody's expecting you when you start. If you're getting hired as a senior developer, well, then you should probably have that senior developer experience. But when people are hiring you as a junior developer, that's not what they're hiring you to do. They're hiring you to provide value. If what they need is somebody to haul around the, the wires and the equipment and tear stuff off the of walls, well, then you're providing value in that position. And if, you, if you're at a company that, that would be interested in what you have to offer, then you belong. Then you're ready. And if you don't have the skills that they need yet, well, then you should build those skills. If you're actively looking to get that career, one of the best ways to do so is to find a position where you can start to work on some of those tasks before you're necessarily full-time. You know, go and talk to the development team. What can I help you with? Most people would love to get some help with something. 
I give kind of a long answer to your question because I, I think that it's important to recognize that, that you might not be able to find a clear cut point. You're never going to feel like you're perfectly prepared. But if you can put yourself in a position where you're helping, you're already doing the work. And I think you're ready to go full time when you're able to consistently be providing value all of the time and give more than you get. I guess I would say that. It's a fantastic answer. Thank you. Ranzi's, I kind of want to piggyback off of that question to you as well. Since it's more recent, since you made that transition, when the opportunity presented itself, uh, what was your mindset before and after? I'm probably a prime example of, uh, of that question, I think. Before getting into application support in, uh, what was it, October? Uh, no, August 2020, maybe? Time slips by. I had uh, no development experience or very little. And then uh, getting into application support, October 5th is when I first, my, I picked up my first ticket. And it was a simple, like, add a new selection in this HTML dropdown. Super simple. But it was kind of really sparked my interest. And uh, from there, it was just on nights and on weekends, go through, you know, Ruby courses and everything else. But by the time I made my switch over to full-time development, I had, like, maybe 160 tickets that I had merged into production. So I through my application support time, I try to pick up a ticket, a development ticket every every week or a couple every week, you know, as much as I could, even if they were just small and simple. And most of them were, but sometimes I'd work on slightly larger projects, but it was it's really helpful for my development, I think. I, I would point out just how closely that mirrors what I was saying. The Ramsey's provided help, started working on things was not full-time yet, but drew his skills where he could. Eventually got to the point where he was basically acting as a developer anyway. <laughs> so let's hire him on. He's already doing the work. Let's hire that guy already. And has continued to do a great job, by the way. I can attest uh, Ramsey's has been a great asset and a great resource. It's coming from someone he trained, he is the best. <laughs> Even though it's biasism, I agree, Damon. <laughs> Cold-heartedly agree with that statement, yeah. Did you ever have like the imposter syndrome whenever you found out or decided to become a full-time developer? Yeah, I'm sure I probably did. It was something that I was like long waiting for. I had plans on moving into development in May 2021 and just had some un- unexpected events come up. So it just didn't really work out then. But finally made the transition in, was it February, January, maybe late January 2022. Sounds about right. Well worth the wait. So we've talked for a while about our individual experiences feeling like a feeling this imposter syndrome and some ways that we can overcome it. Working on building your skills, recognizing some of the psychological biases we have that might mislead us into thinking that we're not ready when we might be and what we can do to be ready. There is actual value to preparation. Just jumping in completely unprepared isn't a good idea, but recognizing that that no amount of preparation is going to fully prepare you. Does anybody have any kind of closing thoughts to tie this up before we conclude our session today? I think it's just comforting uh, to hear that even people who have ears in the industry can also relate. Um, and just being able to be vocal and having someone just uh, take time to listen to that concern goes a long way with coming back. I do hear you. The exact same thing to piggyback off of what he said. 
hearing people that have had so much time in this industry and have have been doing this for a minute they still go through the same things even even to this day as a newbie <laughs> it's good to hear that for sure and it's good to know that we have people all around that want to listen and want to help um, because they were in that position well let's go ahead and uh finish up then recognize that imposter syndrome is a thing it's something that strikes most if not all of us in making us feel like because we're not perfect that we don't belong here we need to do a few things you know reach out to mentors find somebody who can help you as that can make a big difference also recognize that if you are providing value then you belong that's what organizations want is somebody who can help if you're helping then you're doing the right thing and finally if you're wanting to grow your position reach out and find opportunities to move into that gradually if possible find opportunities to help outside the boundaries where you are stretch yourself if you're not in software development take a class or reach out if you're working in a place where they have a development department ask them if you can help can i take some some tickets and work on those that you might not have time to do and hopefully that'll be well received and many times i think it will because people love help there's things we can do to move forward despite our lack of perfect experience that can really help overcome that idea of feeling like you don't belong because once you see yourself moving forward and helping people out you recognize that you do belong there and you're making a difference it's been another great discussion and look forward to doing this again next time thank you